Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter for the Good Bible Studies. I am going to begin in John chapter 4 in this audio. I'm going to cover the first 24 verses, which will take us halfway through the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. The story continues all the way through verse 42, but I won't have enough time to go over such a long passage, so we'll cut it in half, and this will be part A of the story of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. In our last audio, we finished up chapter 3 and talked about the ministry of John the Baptist and how he said that he must increase and he must decrease while Jesus increased increases because he was worried about the jealousy of his disciples. And so that is our context here. Now, after the reason that Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman is, is Jesus has leaving the south, the area around Jerusalem, because John the Baptist had gotten arrested, things are getting hot, and so he takes off to Galilee to probably be away, to be away from the potential persecution of the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, and that's how he ends up in Samaria. There are three one-verse mentions in the Synoptic Gospels of Jesus' change of plans as he left Jerusalem and went to Galilee. It's not really worth looking at those three verses. They're in Mark 1.14, Matthew 4.12, and Luke 4.14. So we'll just essentially stay here in John 4 and do verses 1 through 24. We will start in verses 1 through 4. As I read those verses, when Jesus knew that the Pharisees heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He had to travel through Samaria. How did Jesus know that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples. Some people say it's supernatural knowledge that he had. I don't think so. It's probably just common report. Everybody, the word had gotten out. Jesus was getting popular, and John the Baptist was decreasing in fame. Jesus was not baptizing. His disciples were. Here's some options as to why Jesus was not baptizing. This is from John Gill. Jesus had option number one. He didn't baptize because he had greater work to perform. He had to do healings and exorcisms and teaching and all of that. And so he just didn't have time, so he farmed the workout. He delegated the workout. Option number two. Gill says it would be strange to baptize in one's own name. And I think to myself, what's so strange about that? I baptize you in the name of Jesus, and if it's Jesus doing the baptizing, I don't think that would be a problem. I don't think that's a the real reason why Jesus didn't baptize. baptize. Option number three, there would have been contention among the believers. Some would have said, hey, my baptism is better than yours because I got baptized by the Son of God himself. Well, given human nature, that wouldn't surprise me, so that's a good reason. In fact, I believe that options one and options three are why Jesus didn't baptize. He had better work to do. I wouldn't say better work. He had different work to do that took up more time, let's put it that way, and option three he didn't want to have people fighting over who was going to get baptized by the Messiah. Now, Jesus had been in Judea. He left Judea in verse 3, and he had been there for about eight months, according to John Gill. Now, this is both in Jerusalem and in the countryside around Jerusalem, and even beyond the Jordan River a little bit. Now, he had to travel through Samaria to get to Galilee. He could have gone east of the Jordan River and crossed over like a lot of people did, but he went straight through Samaria, if you're going to go on a straight shot from Jerusalem up to Galilee, you've got to go through Samaria because it's right in between. And, and there was a city called Samaria, by the way. This is not what it's talking about. It's talking about the country of the country of Samaria, the region of Samaria. 
Now, first question we need to ask and answer is, why did Jesus go there when he had forbidden his disciples to do so? You recall, this is at a later time, in Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus sent out these 12 after giving them instructions. Don't take the road leading to other nations and don't enter any Samaritan town. This is, of course, because he wanted to get the gospel preached to the Jews first. The Gentiles would come later. Now, notice that was a prohibition against teaching in a Samaritan town. But he didn't say anything about just traveling through. So that would explain that apparent discrepancy. Now, of course, we know that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. And so oftentimes the Jews would go on the, take the route on the east side of the Jordan River. Going straight from Jerusalem to Galilee through Samaria was a three-day's journey, according to, to Josephus. Adam Clark quotes Josephus to that effect. Let's mention here one other reason why Jesus might have headed to Galilee. Well, actually, I've already mentioned it's not another reason. It's probably the reason. is because the Pharisees, the big shots in Jerusalem, the big shot religious authorities, heard he was making more disciples than John. And John had made enough disciples to get Herod Antipas upset enough to imprison John. Now, if John's ministry, which was small compared to Jesus's ministry, if John's ministry is causing fears of a political revolution and retribution from the Romans, think about what Jesus's ministry might do with even greater numbers of disciples following him. It could really, Jesus could really cause a political storm and get both the Jews and Herod Antipas in trouble with the Romans. And so Jesus, at this time, we can reasonably speculate, decided it was time to leave, go to Galilee where there would be less religious and political opposition. We now turn to verses 5 and 6 in John 4. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about Six in the evening, which is really about noon, Noon. it was the sixth hour the original Greek has, which I take to be noontime. I, don't, I do not know why the Holman Christian Study Bible, which I'm using here, said six in the evening. All right, where is this town called Sychar? If you'll look at a map, you'll see the famous mountains of Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. Mount Ebal is about just a few miles north and east of Mount Gerizim. They're famous in the Old Testament. The curses, the curses were pronounced from Mount Ebal on Israel. If you disobey me, all you get all kind of hemorrhoids and all kind of bad things are going to happen to you. If you disobey my law and the blessings, if you keep the law, they were shouted out from Mount Gerizim across the valley in between the two mountains. Sychar was near the northernmost mountain of Ebal, the cursed city, the city where the curses are coming from. Jacob's well was near Gerizim where the Blessings that come from both of these cities are sort of in the northeastern sector of Samaria as, a, as you're heading up, as you're moving over toward the Jordan Valley south of the Sea of Galilee. They're easy to find on a map. Now, the name Sychar, the village, oh, and let me mention also Sychar was near Shechem, and Shechem, of course, you recall, that's where Abraham first set foot in Israel after he came from Haran in his journey to the Promised Land. So this place was sort of, had a lot of history to it. The name Sychar means drunken, probably from the drunkenness of its inhabitants. That's a great name for a city, isn't it? Isn't it? Charleston, South Carolina should be named Sychar. Jacob's well was there. What is Jacob's well? This well is mentioned nowhere else in Scripture. 
there's some options for the origin of the name. It could have been a well that was dug by Jacob, or it could have been a well that Jacob and his family made use of. Now, as you know, people love to make tourist sites out of biblical spots. There is a well in a Orthodox monastery over there now, according to Wikipedia, that is that the Orthodox claim is the site of Jacob's well has a long has a long history. I don't know whether it was the same well or not, but I just thought I'd mention that to you in case you're ever up that way on a tour or something. You want to check it out. Now, she says that, and not she, I'm sorry, John, the author of this gospel, says that Sychar was near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. What, what is that referring to? Well, Jacob had brought some land in the vicinity of Shechem, where his grandfather, Abraham, had first arrived into the promised land. We read that in Genesis 33:18 through 19. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, that's Syria, he arrived safely at Shechem in the land of Canaan and camped in front of the city. This is when he came to Shechem after he had gotten Rachel and Leah as his two wives. And he was getting ready to meet Esau. He purchased a section of the field where he had pitched his tent from the sons of Hamar, Shechem's father, for a hundred casitas. Whatever a casita is, that's Holman Christian Study Bible translation of the unit of measure there. So here we have in Genesis 33, Jacob had purchased that he purchased a section of that field from the sons of Hamar, the, the Shechemites there. Now, once he purchased the land, he apparently gave the land to Joseph, because we read in Genesis 48, verses 21 through 22, Then Israel, that's Jacob, different name for Jacob, Then Israel, or Jacob, said to Joseph, Look, I am about to die, but God will be with you, and I will bring you back to the land of your fathers, over and above what I am giving your brothers. I am giving you the one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and bow. So apparently, according to some commentators, that's the same land that Jacob gave to Joseph. Apparently he had to, he had to win the land by fighting the Amorites, the, the indigenous pagans there that, that were there. So at any rate, John is quoting Old Testament history about the property that Jacob had given to his son. The well was probably named because the land had been, had, been, had been owned by Jacob at one time before he gave it to his son Joseph. All right, that's just a little bit of background there. Jesus arrives at this well in Sychar. He's worn out from his journey. Now, what does that tell us? It tells us that Jesus was fully man as well as fully God because God does not get worn out. So this is Jesus in his human nature, not his divine nature. He sat down at the well. It was about six in the evening, as the Holman Christian Study Bible the NIV says. The NIV Study Bible says it's the sixth hour. If you use the Jewish reckoning of time, the Jews started their reckoning of time at 6 o'clock in the morning. So six hours from there, we'll put it at high noon. Now, I did find one uh, Adam Clark referring to a scholar who agrees with the Holman Christian Study Bible that it was in the evening, 6 o'clock in the evening. I don't know how they did it. I don't believe that that's really what happened. But people who do take that time argue that people normally draw water at the end of the day rather than, rather than that in the heat of the midday sun as the NIV Study Bible points out. But against that, we can find Josephus recording that the young ladies that Moses helped draw water, that was done at noon, Josephus claims. 
and it's not in the Bible. This is in Exodus 2, 15 through 17. When Pharaoh heard about this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. That incident, according to Josephus, happened at noon. Well, anyway, we, we're not going to worry too much about that. Why is the time mentioned here, 12 o'clock noon, to account for Christ's fatigue? He's been walking all morning. It's hot. It's in the middle of the day, and he's thirsty, so that accounts for his thirst. It also accounts for the fact that the disciples were going to buy food, and that's why Jesus was left there alone at the well. If the disciples had been there, he could have asked the disciples to get him ordered, but they weren't. We go to John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. This was typical. Women did the drawing of water at wells in the ancient Near East. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, for his disciples had gone into town to buy food. That's why he needed the woman to help her, because his disciples had gone to buy food. We might ask ourselves, was he deliberately plotting a time of evangelism here, or was he just asking for a drink of water? I don't know, but... He sure took advantage of it as a time to evangelize. Application point here, if you got a chance in the ordinary course of life to talk to somebody about Jesus, do it. Those are the best times to do it. Rather than dragging a pagan into a church meeting and letting him listen to a boring sermon. But at any rate, people debate that. Was Jesus thirsty or was he looking for a chance to witness? Notice that the fact that the men were gone, the disciples were gone, this gave the woman an opportunity to open up a little bit about her past life she wasn't all that willing to when jesus exposed it but it would have been even harder for her if those all those men had been present so it was good for jesus to be alone by the way this was highly unorthodox for a single man dealing with a woman in public and the single man's alone sort of he sort of violated the billy graham rule if you think about it he was there by himself with a woman Tongues could have started wagging, but he did it anyway. He witnessed to her. Now, later on, the woman is going to say, or either the woman or John is going to say, Samaritans have no dealing with Jews, but that's not strictly true. They would trade with each other. They would trade with each other. So the disciples, when they went into town to buy food, those Samaritans, they might have hated those Jewish disciples of Jesus, but they're going to sell him food because money talks. It's always been amazing to me about how people who hate each other will trade with each other. How about the English and the French in New Orleans in colonial times? I think it was every Friday. It was one day a week. They called off their hatred of each other. They had two different quarters in the city. It's still today, the English Quarter and the French Quarter in New Orleans. And they didn't speak to each other. They hated each other's guts. But on trade day, the market day, they would go and put all their stuff in the middle. Nobody would steal anything, and they'd start buying and selling. How about the during the American war between the states the south would sell southern uh plantation owners would sell northerners cotton during the war even though it was illegal because money talks that's why i'm in favor of free trade i think it leads to peace instead of war we turn now to verse 9 9 in john chapter 4 the samaritan woman continues her conversation with jesus how is it that you a jew ask for a drink from me a samaritan woman she asked him, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The NIV margin has her saying, for Jews do not use dishes Samaritans have used. The idea of that is, is that since we Samaritans are unclean, according to Jewish thinking, according to Jewish rabbis, we are unclean. So if you use our eating and drinking utensils, you're going to become unclean too. And then that's bad. That's not good. You shouldn't do that. 
you shouldn't be dealing with my utensils as a Samaritan. The NIV Study Bible points that out. Now, I'm going to assume where it says for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. That could either be the Samaritan woman saying that, or it could be John, the writer of the gospel, saying that. The original Greek, of course, does not have quotation marks, and we are left to speculate sometimes as who said what. Now, when she says the Jews do not associate with Samaritans or do not use their utensils, that didn't mean that the Jews had no dealings at all with the Samaritans. As I've said earlier, they could buy food, they could have their wheat milled, they might take lodgings with the Samaritans. But some things, this is according to John Gill, but John Gill points out there's some things that Jews did not do with Samaritans. They didn't take favors from them, which is exactly what Jesus was asking. He's asking for a favor. He didn't, they didn't, Jews did not use Samaritans' wine or vinegar. Jews did not eat with Samaritans, and Jews did not enter into partnerships with Samaritans, business partnerships. To show how much the Jews and Samaritans hated each other, Adam Clark points out that the Jews' most merciful wish to the Samaritans was that they might have no part in the resurrection. <laughs> they might not get resurrected from the dead to live with God forever. They didn't want that. They wanted, rather, that the Samaritans be annihilated. This is true hatred, folks, true hatred. Now, when the Samaritan woman asked Jesus, why do you want to drink? For, ask a drink for me, a Samaritan woman? John Gill insists that this is in a scoffing, jeering way. What do you want to drink for me? Like she's a, some kind of a shrew or something. I don't think so. I think that the woman was truly amazed that a, a, a Jewish man would ask her for a drink, and she's asking for information. That's my humble opinion. How did she even know that Jesus was a Jew? Well, it could be Jesus' dress, as Clark and Jameson Fawcett and Brown suggest. Those two also suggest it could be Jesus' Galilean dialect. Or it could, in my opinion, be his accent. Mark 15, Mark chapter 14, verse 70. This is Peter from Galilee standing around in Jerusalem in the court of Caiaphas, the high priest, while upstairs Jesus is being taken through his kangaroo court. He's in the courtyard. Somebody listens to Peter and says, hey, you, you sound like you're from Galilee. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing there said to Peter again, you certainly are one of them since you are also a Galilean. They heard his accent. So I think that's what the woman probably heard, that Jesus had a Galilean accent. Now, since we've been talking about why the Samaritans hate the Jews so much, or that they hate the Jews so much, let's look a little bit as to why they hated the Jews so much. Now, the Samaritans in, in Jesus' time were not genuine Israelites. They were a corrupted race that sprang from a mixture of different nations, and their religion was corrupted also. How did that happen? Well, Samaria, of course, was in the territory of the northern ten tribes of Israel. You know the Old Testament history. In 722, Shalmaneser V had come in and laid siege to Samaria, the capital city of the, of the northern kingdom. And I think he died right before the city fell, and Sargon II, the, the successor king of Assyria, then took over the city, and then the whole area he repopulated with colonists, forced colonists from Babylonia, Syria, from the east, and Babylonia, Assyria, and Syria. Second Kings 17.24 tells us how he did that. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, and Hamath. Uh, Kutha is a, city, is a city on the Euphrates near the city of Babylon, probably. Ava is somewhere over there in Assyria, they think. Hamath is a, is a, a well-known city on the Rontes River in the Lebanon Valley to the north. And Sepharvim, I don't know where that one is, but, the, but it's somewhere in the east. 
Uh, these, the king of Assyria brought these people and settled them in place of the Israelites in the cities of Samaria. And so then the king of Assyria then took the Jews in Samaria and scattered them all over the Near East over the jurisdictions that he had charge over. The settlers took possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. Now, the reason that the king did that was to stop revolt. If you bust up a, a conquered people's ethnic identity and then bust up their religion, well, they're less likely going to revolt against you. So that was the standard policy of the Syrian kings. So they were not pure Jews racially, but more important than that, their religion was corrupted also. The Samaritans had built their own temple uh, distinct from Jer the temple at Jerusalem that was near Mount Gerizim. And they accepted only the Torah and the book of Joshua as their scriptural authority. We go now to verse 10 in John chapter 4. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. If you would ask him, ask who? The gift of God. I think that's who he's referring to. If you knew the gift of God who was saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him the gift of God. I think the gift of God is referring to Jesus himself as a gift given by God, unmerited favor given to the world. The Greek for this word gift is used only here in the gospel according to the NIV study Bible, and so the word emphasizes God's grace through Christ. Now John Gill says it could be the Holy Spirit if you do the, the gift of God, the Holy Spirit, and who was saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask, and then I don't know who the hymn would refer to, you would ask the Holy Spirit, I don't think so. So this is, Jesus is the gift of God. John 3.16, of course, that favorite, that famous verse, for God loved the world in this way. He gave his only, his one and only son. He gave him. He's a gift so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Now, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman that Jesus, he, Jesus, would give her living water. Well, what is the meaning here? The NIV says it's eternal life. In John 7, 38 through 39, the meaning is the Holy Spirit. The, meaning, the reference for living water is the Holy Spirit. I don't think we should make too much of a distinction there because the Holy Spirit is who gives eternal life. So let's look at two references here. In John 4, verse 14, which is just four verses from where we are now, Jesus says this, Whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Water gives life. You can't live very long without water. So it's a good metaphor. Now in John 7 verses 38 through 39, three chapters from now, we see the metaphor used again. And the, here the metaphor obviously refers to the Holy Spirit. Jesus says this, the one who believes in me, as the scripture has said, will have streams of living water flow from deep within him. He said this about the Spirit. So there's where living water is tied directly to the Spirit. Now, living water refers to spring water as opposed to dead, stagnant water. You can find, we, wouldn't, we don't call it dead water, we don't call it unliving water, but we call it stagnant water. You can find stagnant water in ponds and pools and tanks and cisterns. It's always green, there's always scum on the top, algae, or falling down leaves or branches in it. And if you drank it, you'd probably have to go to the hospital. But living water is fresh. It's spring water. It bubbles up. It's clear. It, it, it bubbles over the rocks. You can see all the way through it. It cleanses. It refreshes. It enables life. So that's a good metaphor. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He cleanses us. He refreshes us. And he gives us life. It reminds me, I was on the western end of China, way up in the mountains there, the Pamir Mountains in Xinjiang province. 
and I was up about 10,000 feet, and there's no the oxygen up there. Oxygen up there is so thin, you can't you can hardly breathe, and algae can't live, and fish can't live either. And so when you look at the pools up there, these these lakes these that are very very deep, you can look down 30, 40 feet down to the bottom and see the rocks on the bottom of the water. It's the clearest water I ever saw, and so uh, if you take that kind of water and watch it flow down a trench over rocks, they they would take this water and put and and make uh, rock troughs from the top of the mountain so they could get water. It's a desert region, region, but the snow melts in the winter and the water would flow down over those rocks. That's the clearest. That's the most beautiful living water you could ever see. Well, that's kind of how the metaphor works. That's how the Holy Spirit gives us life and, and, and how he refreshes us and cleanses us. John chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. She's kind of pumping up the well here, you know. This is, hey, now you're trying to tell me that you got better water than we've got here? This is Jacob's well, stranger. Don't you understand who you're talking about? Whose water you're running down? You got water better than Jacob's water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? Well, actually, Jesus was greater than their father Jacob. Father means ancestor because they were half Jews, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were their fathers too. And she says, you don't even have a bucket, and here you are offering me living water. How are you going to get the living water to me? You don't even have a bucket to hand it to me. Now we again address the issue of was the woman talking in a scoffing tone, as John Gill thinks so. Now here there's a little bit more evidence, a little bit more probability that she might have been doing that. What are you talking about? You don't even have a bucket. I don't think so, though. In my humble opinion, she's just shocked at what Jesus said. What? You don't even have a bucket? You're not greater than Jacob, than our father Jacob. How are you going to give us water? That's the way I think she was saying it. Just in amazement, not in a scoffing manner. Now, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, quoting Josephus, has an interesting point here. The woman identified herself with the, the Jewish father Jacob, the Jewish patriarch Jacob. This is what uh, Jameson Fawcett, this is what Josephus said. For when it went well with the Jews, they claimed kindred with them as being descended from Joseph. But when misfortunes befell the Jews, they disowned all connection with them. So selective selective appeals to authority there. Now this woman, when she asked the question, you aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? This could have been a rhetorical question with the answer expected to be no, or she could have been expressing a little bit of doubt. It couldn't possibly be that you're greater than our father David because, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out, the woman could have perceived that actually she was talking to some sort of greatness. She knew this man was different. I don't, I don't doubt that in, in the least. I think she thought that on the surface he wasn't greater than the father Jacob, but she was wondering, who is this guy? Why is he talking like this? John chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Jesus said, everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again, meaning this water from the well, not the living water, but from the well. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. Now, she's not thinking about eternal life. She's thinking about water that will save her from having to go to the well, which is probably a lot of trouble. And so, you know, this is all the way it always is when you talk to people who are earthly-minded, to get them 
elevated a little bit to think, of, think about spiritual things, it's hard to do. And I can understand the woman. I mean, they're talking about water, and Jesus is using a metaphor and eternal life. She doesn't, she doesn't know what eternal life. She, he's just some stranger. So she immediately jumps to the conclusion that this man is offering her a, a way to get water without having to draw it. L- living water. That water leaps up or springs up, leaps up, depending on how you translate it. John 10, verse 10 says this, A thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. This is Jesus talking. I have come so that they may have life and have it in abundance, and water gives life. We go to verse 16, 17, and 18 in John chapter 4. Go call your husband. Ooh, it's a sudden change of subject here. Talking about living water, and also we switch to uh, husband. What's this? Go call your husband, he told her, and come back here. I don't have a husband, she answered. You have correctly said, I don't have a husband, Jesus said, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this particular passage has engendered a lot of debate about what exactly the Samaritan woman, what her, what her marital situation, or her, I shouldn't say marital, her, 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 okay, her marital situation, what it was. It says she has five, she's had five husbands. Well, that word husband is on air, which can be translated man. So it could be you've had five men, and now the sixth man you have is not your husband. Could be. Probably not. Let's look at some options here, what that five could mean. Could mean. Option number one, five legal divorces one after another. This is John Gill and Adam Clark's suggestion. Well, if that's so, the woman didn't sin because it's legal to get divorced. The woman couldn't get divorced anyway. She she would be divorced by her husband back then, according to the Jewish law. And if this were the case, Jesus is merely stating, stating a fact with no blame. She just had one divorce after another. And so he's just, instead of trying to chastise her for her sin, he would be showing his prophetic power to show that he's the Messiah. Now, if this is the case... This puts the Samaritan woman in a more favorable light than she's usually put. She could have been divorced unjustly by her first husband. You know, those, those, those mosaic divorces from the Old Testament law. You could get a divorce for burning the toast, laughing too much, gossiping too much. You know, some stupid reason like that. So she's now divorced. She's got a certificate that shows she's divorced, but she's still damaged goods because a man might not want to marry a divorced woman in that culture. But a second man marries her anyway, but he looks down on her, on her a little bit because she's divorced. So then he gets mad because she burns his toast, doesn't put enough sugar in his coffee. So he divorces her unjustly and so on. And now she's even more damaged goods, finds another husband. He's not really happy with her and, go, and we go through the five husbands that way. But now, So now she finds a sixth man who is not, Jesus points out, is not her husband. And so she either lives with that man or is betrothed to that man. The idea being that since the woman had already been married five times, man number six might not be interested in marrying her anymore. And so he just agreed to shack up with her, but he wasn't going to take on the responsibilities of marriage. Now, if she's living with the man, she's, she's sinning. Number six is the sin that Jesus is calling out. If she's just betrothed and hasn't carried him home, then hey, then you've got a case the woman didn't sin at all. But anyway, that's option number one, five legal divorces after another. And of course, the Jews could only divorce at the most three times. This is not according to Mosaic, Mosaic law, but to the uh, rabbinic law. And that would make people look down on her. That's option number one, five legal divorces one after another. Option number two, five dead husbands one after another. Well, if that's the case, she's 
she's kind of a jinx, a black widow, <laughs> but she she didn't sin. So Jesus is just pointing out her past with no blame in order to show that he's a prophet. Third option, she had five divorces, but not for trivial reasons, but because she had committed adultery five times. Now, that if that was true, then Jesus is implicitly rebuking the woman for her sin by pointing out that she'd been married five, divorced five times before or that she'd had five husbands before. Now, arguing against that option is the law in the Pentateuch said adulteresses were to be stoned. But cutting against that is the fact that the law may not have been enforced. In fact, I read somewhere, I can't back it up right now on the seat of my pants, by the seat of my pants, but that the law against stoning, against adulterers was very rarely enforced. There was not that much adultery in that society back then. But that is a possibility. I don't believe it's, it is a what Jesus meant, but it is possible. Or option number four, she could have had five live-in boyfriends because that word five husbands could be translated as five men because on air is totally ambiguous. can be translated either as man or husband. Now, here's your typical preaching point, application point. The woman was seeking for life fulfillment in sexual relationships, so she went from one to the other. Number one, number two, number three, number four, number five. That does not work. What does work is eternal life. Rivers of living water springing up to eternal life. That's a great point. But it only works for if there were five legal divorces at one after another. And, it, and cutting against that is the woman wouldn't be the one filing for divorce looking for fulfillment. So it doesn't really work for point number one. Point number two is five dead husbands one after another. She's not really looking for fulfillment. Point number three, five divorces because she had committed adultery five times. Yeah, it works good with that. I'm not satisfied with husband number one, so I'll shack up with husband number two and then I'll marry him. Point number four, five live-in boyfriends. It works with that because she's not happy with the first one, so she goes to the second one. So that, that application might work depending on the situation. But too often people don't delve into the possibilities here and just assume the woman was sinning and looking for fulfillment. Now, how about man number six, though? Jesus says that the man you now have is not your husband. Woo, now that sounds like she's shacked up with somebody that's not her husband. That's obviously a sin. So we could say, okay, whatever the first five husbands are, we don't know, but we know number six, so we know the woman was sinning, so Jesus is rebuking her for her sin so that she can get saved, so she can re renounce her sin and get saved. However, I will point out to you that Adam Clark makes a very a fairly strong case that the woman wasn't sinning at all that this it's not an ironclad case in fact i don't believe him but it's a fairly strong case that the woman was not sinning because the man that she now has is her betrothed husband who she's not brought into her house yet because you you know you can be betrothed for a long time without having sex with him that was the typical custom mary was betrothed to jesus and she never had sex with joseph mary was betrothed to joseph and she never had sex with joseph now, let me give you Clark's argument. He's got four reasons to assume that the woman had not sinned. Here's reason number one. It's not likely that a woman so far advanced in years as to have five husbands should now have been found living in adultery with a sixth person. Uh, I don't know why that would be. I don't know why it would be un... un uh, listen, when people want to commit adultery, they'll commit adultery. Look at these movie stars. My gosh. Adultery as easy as with them is rolling off a log. Option number two, Jesus never reproved her for her sexual sin. No, Clark says, no, that's not option. That's a reason number two why the woman did not sin, according to Clark. My answer to that is, no, he didn't explicitly reprove her, but implicitly, the man you have living with now is not your husband. 
That's all he needed to say. That would be an implicit rebuke of her sin. So I don't think Clark's reason number two applies. Clark's reason number three, why would people believe a tramp when she testified that Jesus was the Messiah? You that We haven't gotten to that yet, but she went around telling everybody that this man knows everything about me. He's the Messiah. She had a lot of influence for somebody who had been living in sin with five, currently living in sin with somebody. Well, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know about that. I guess his argument's a little bit stronger than his first two. Here's argument number four. The first thing that came to her mind after Jesus exposed her past was not repentance. So therefore, Clark says, Jesus was not rebuking her for her sin. Well, I can answer that one. The reason she didn't talk about repentance if she was sinning is she, people don't like to talk about their sin. They don't like to talk about repentance. She was kicking. She switched to where the proper place of worship was, was to avoid talking about her marital situation. So all in all, I don't think Clark really proves his point. I think there's no question if we summarize all this complicated stuff, we don't know what happened with the first man. It doesn't matter. The sixth man, most probably, was not a betrothed man, but was a man she was living with, and she was living in sin, and so the woman was trying to change the subject. Now, let's talk about an evangelism strategy here. When you go to somebody who's a sinner, do you give them the bad news first or the good news? Jesus talked about the living water first, and then he went to her sin. I've just watched a documentary about... Uh, the family or the fellowship in Washington, D.C. to do the National Prayer Breakfast, and they get all these dictators and politicians, people like Bill Clinton and Barack Obama and people like that, Donald Trump, people who are obviously not Christians and most probably not Christians, and they witness to them. And their documentary, which was a hit job, complaining about this family, the fellowship, complaining about the Christians doing this, saying they never rebuke these dictators. They went down to Uganda, I think, and didn't rebuke the 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 man they were witnessing to, they told him that Jesus loved him. Well, it's true. If eventually you don't rebuke him for their sin, then you're not doing your job. But up front, is that the thing you do? You go to the Ugandan dictator and say, you, sir, are a mass murderer. You're going to hell. I, I don't really think that's the way you personally evangelize people. You get them saved, and then you get them to repent. Or, or you talk to them about the good news, eternal life, and then you say, well, if you want eternal life, you have to repent of your sins. And you've got to work your way around to the fact that you're doing some stuff. And usually you don't need to really point it out to the person. They know they're sinners. I always ask people, do you know you're a sinner? Don't you know you're a sinner? And generally you get people to admit sooner or later, yeah, I did some bad stuff. If the Holy Spirit is not convicting them of their sin and they don't even think they're a sinner. Well, then that's, they ain't going to get saved. That's <laughs> just as simple as that. So I thought that documentary was uh, off base criticizing for the wrong thing there because Jesus himself didn't start out with a sin. He started out with the good news. Now, in verse 16, Jesus told the Samaritan woman, go call your husband and come back here. Why would Jesus do that? Option number one, so Jesus could get him saved too. John Gill denies that. Option number two, to show her that she needed to repent before she could get the living water. I think that's what Jesus was after. We got to have repentance before we get the living water. Option number three, to show her he was a prophet, and because he was a prophet, he was well qualified to speak to her of eternal life. Well, I don't know why he needed the husband to prove that he's a prophet, because the woman had already admitted that she had, well, she didn't admit, but she did, let's put it this way, she didn't deny that the, that the woman, that the man she was living with, or that she had now, the sixth man, was not her husband. She didn't deny it. Deny it. She didn't need the man to be brought there to prove that, so Jesus could prove that he was a prophet. She already knew he was a prophet. So I think the reason that he wanted to, the woman to call her husband 
was so that it would confront her with her sin. Maybe a side effect of that when he could witness to him too, but we don't see the husband actually showing up, so I really think the reason was is because he wanted to, to confront her with her sin. Verse 19, John chapter 4, Sir, the woman replied, I see that you are a prophet. That was because of Jesus' special insight into her marital situation. Now, if she was indeed being immoral, and I think she was, then she ingeniously, ingeniously switches the topic away from her past, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown point out. Now, she, she thought he was a prophet. Maybe she thought Jesus was qualified enough to decide the Jewish-Samaritan religious dispute. She did not see him as the Messiah. A prophet is not the same thing as the Messiah. So she was getting there, but she had a long way to go before she saw who Jesus really was. We go to John chapter 4, verses 20 through 21. The Samaritan woman continues, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, this is Mount Gerizim, yet you Jews say that the place to worship, yet you, referring to the Jews, yet you say that the place to worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus told her, Believe me, woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now, Mount Gerizim was a place that the Samaritans held especially sacred. There are some events which happened on this mountain in Genesis 12:7. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, I will give this land to your offspring. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. That was nearby there, Shechem. Genesis 33:20. And he, Jacob, set up an altar there and called it God, the God of Israel. So Jacob set up an altar there in the area of Mount Gerizim. Deuteronomy 11:29. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim the blessing at Mount Gerizim and the curse at Mount Ebal. And then that was actually done in Deuteronomy 27:12. When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes will stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. So it was the place where the blessings were pronounced. It's a famous place. And so the Samaritans built a temple there. That temple was built there about 400 B.C., according to the NIV Study Bible. But interestingly enough, the Jews tore it down in 128 B.C. You know, you're tearing somebody's temple down. That'd be like us going and nuking the Kaaba and Mecca. Can you imagine what the, what the typical Muslim would think if you did that? Well, this is what the Samaritans would think when the Jews tore down their temple. No wonder they hated each other. This mountain was actually in sight from Sikar, by the way. Sucker was closer to Ebal, but you could look down at, at, at Mount Gerizim and actually see it. Let's look a little bit at how that controversy started between the Jews. Deuteronomy 27, 4-6 says this, When you have crossed the Jordan, this is Moses talking to the people, you are to set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I am commanding you today. You are to cover them with plaster. You are supposed to build an altar there with stones to the Lord your God. Well, the Samaritans, some scholars allege, they changed the scripture to Mount Gerizim, and so they put it on Mount Gerizim, which made the place more holy than Ebal, and so therefore they built a temple there. Jameson Fawcett Brown quotes a scholar named Kennecott who says, actually, the Samaritans had the correct reading. It, the altar was supposed to be on Mount Gerizim and not on Mount Ebal, but either way, they took this verse and said, because it's, it was a holy place of the altar that was to be set up uh, on Mount Gerizim, either because we have the correct reading or because we've changed the correct reading to Mount Gerizim, we're going to build a temple there, and that directly violated Deuteronomy 12.5, which says this, Instead, you must turn to the place Yahweh your God chooses from all your tribes to put his name for his dwelling and go there. And that place was Jerusalem. It doesn't say it's Jerusalem in that verse. I guess the Samaritans could claim that the place that God, Yahweh your God chose was Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem. 
Now, that's an interesting question. I'll ha- I haven't researched that one yet. Later. I did discover something interesting that the Samaritans are still around to this day. They got a website, newsletter, got to tell you what their relig- religious beliefs are. Namely, that they, they don't believe, they just believe the Torah and the book of Joshua. And they have the prophet, the prophet, which I assume is Deuteronomy 18, 15, and 18, refers not to Jesus, not to the Messiah, but to somebody, the son of Joseph, or some, I forgot his name, some weird name I've never heard of before. Well, so the Samaritans had their religion, and they were hot on it, and, and Jesus said, believe me, and that sounds sort of emphatic, believe me, woman or dear lady, I don't like that translation, woman, believe me, dear, dear woman, an hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. In other words, I ain't concerned about physical temples. Would the average evangelical in America, the one who's just got hot in his head, he's going to build a church building. There are too many architects in the American church and not enough people who, are, who read this verse and say, hot dog, we're not going to worship the Father on a temple in Mount Gerizim or in a temple in Jerusalem. We don't care about that. Because spiritual worship is in a spiritual temple, the church, and the church is not geographically constrained. John 4.22 You, Samaritans, this is Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman, you Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship, we Jews, Jesus means, we worship what we do know, because salvation is from the Jews. Well, why did the Samaritans not know? Well, because even though they worship the true God, the true God of the Pentateuch, they didn't know anything about the true God because they refused to accept the rest of God's revelation to them. This is according to the NIV Study Bible. The prophets, the writings, they knew nothing of that. And also, they incorporated idols into their worship. I'm going to give you a quote. So it was not only that they didn't respect the, the, the canonical scriptures, Old Testament scriptures, also, they were idolatrous. Let's read 2 Kings 17, 26-34. The settlers, that's the people in Samaria. The settlers spoke to the king of Assyria, who was in charge now, after 722 B.C., saying, The nations that you have deported and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the requirements of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them that are killing them, because the people don't know the requirements of the God of the land. Then the king of Assyria issued a command. Send back one of the priests you deported. Have him go. He's talking about the people that the Assyrians deported, the priests deported back out into the east, into the Mesopotamian area, wherever he was deported, have him go and live there back in Samaria so he can teach them the requirements of the God of the land. So one of the priests they had deported came and lived in Bethel, Bethel, and he began to teach them how they should fear Yahweh. But the people of each nation were still making their own gods, all the nations that were imported into Samaria, they were still making their own gods in the cities where they lived and putting them in the shrines of the high places that the people of Samaria had made. The men of Babylon made Sukkoth Benoth. The men of Kuth made Nergal. These are the different tribes that were brought into Samaria. The men of Hamath made Ashima. The Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak. And the Sephirvites burned their children in the fire to Adrimelech and Adrimelech the son, the gods of the Sepharvim. In other words, all these horrible pagan uh, gods were being worshipped in Samaria, including child sacrifice. They feared the Lord, but they also appointed for the number of priests to serve them in the shrines of the high places. Yeah, in other words, they had... Yahweh altars, but they also had idol authors. They feared the Lord, but they also worshiped their own gods. When they says they feared the Lord, that means they put up idols to God, to Yahweh. They also worshiped their own gods according to the customs of the nations which they've been deported from. They are still practicing the form of customs to this day, and I assume they're still doing it in Jesus' day, in the time of second, when Second Kings was written. 
In the Old Testament, they were doing all that, and they were probably still doing it when Jesus was there. None of them fear the Lord or observe their statutes and ordinances, the law and commandments the Lord commanded the descendants of Jacob. All right, so, you know, Jesus knew what he was talking about when he told the Samaritan woman, you don't know, you worship what you do not know. Your religion is bunkum. Now, Jesus didn't mince any words, you know. I mean, <laughs> he's already exposed her as a sexually immoral woman, and now he's jumping on her religion. That's the thing. Every person who witnesses about Jesus has a tough road to hoe because you are going to be attacking idols, selfish people who are living their lives for God instead, for, for themselves instead of for God, and you have got to gently tear them down while at the same time showing that you love the person. Not an easy task. That's why I admire good evangelists. They, they know better than me how to do it. It's, I admire them. It's a gift. Last two verses of this audio, John 4, verses 23 through 24. Jesus continues, But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth instead of in a temple at Mount Gerizim. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. In other words, God is not a building made out of brick and mortar or acacia wood or whatever you want to build it with, cement block. He is spirit. So the true temple is spiritual. And those who worship him must worship him in a spiritual temple, in the church of Jesus Christ. And when we do that, we worship him in truth. So quit worrying about your darn building, lady, dear lady. As the NIV Study Bible puts it, true worship will be in accord with God's nature. Well, what's God's nature? God's nature is spiritual. He's not physical. He doesn't have hands and feet. The NIV Study Bible continues, he is not confined to a physical geographic place. Now, this is a nice thought. I'm adding this. This is a nice thought for Christians who build and fight over church buildings. There's no point in it, folks. I just as soon never see a church building again as long as I live and worship in people's homes. That's what they did in the New Testament. Jesus said you're going to, he's going to be a time when in the New Covenant that he's getting ready to establish, we're going to have a New Testament uh, temple, New Testament tabernacle where the Holy Spirit dwells. And when we do that, we're going to be worshiping spirit and the truth. This fits right in with what he said in John 14:6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth means it's really there. Truth has kind of two connotations, truth as opposed to false, but also truth as real, not non-existent, but existent. No one comes to the Father except through me. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and took up residence among us. We observed his glory. The glory is the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He's real. Jesus is real. That's the best thing you got going for you when you witness to somebody. He's real. You don't believe it? This is what I tell, always tell them. If you... Pray that Jesus will reveal himself to you if you don't think he's real. Now, I got one Chinese former student of mine I've been working on for about five or six years, and she she agreed, yeah, I'll pray whether Jesus is real. But last time I talked to her, I called her about once a month, and I called her, and I said, did you pray? No, I didn't pray. Well, she's not interested. Because if somebody starts praying, it, Jesus, are you real? Are you true? Jesus is the truth, and he will reveal himself to you. That's what you got going for you when you witness, is you have the truth. All the other people out there, and there are millions of them, all the other philosophies and religions and all out there, they don't have the truth. They are walking in darkness. So if you will just have that confidence that Jesus is really real, when you're talking to people, you can convey that confidence to them that they can know him too. I know this. I've seen it work uh, lots of times in China, and uh, it can, I guess it can work here in America too. All right, we're going to cut it off here. Well, first of all, uh, Jesus said an hour is coming and is now here. He's referring to the fact that he is the kingdom. He is the new temple. He's getting ready to start his kingdom now. 
We're going to cut it off right here at verse 24, and we'll start with 25 and go through 42 in the next audio. We'll call that Jesus and the Samaritan Woman Part 2. I'm doing that for the sake. I don't want to make this audio too long. Hope you enjoyed this one, and I hope you tune in for the next one.